Hey, what's up, everybody, and thank you for checking out this week's edition of the Derek Diamond Experience. This is the best of episode, volume one, featuring interviews from the Unicorn Wranglers, Jason Robbins, Carrie Hunter, Christian Garman, and the great Steve Wise. But first, I want to talk about the Unicorn Wranglers and the release of their brand new album, Murder Mystery Night. It has 10 brand new tracks, including their new single, Carne Asada, and Twin Peaks, which happens to be the theme song of the Derek Diamond Experience. Murder Mystery Night is available now on iTunes, Amazon, Google Music, and Spotify. And don't forget to check them out on social media. Like them on Facebook. Their Twitter and Instagram handles are at Wranglers. And last but not least, check out their website, unicornwranglers.com. You're listening to the Nerd Cave Network. This is Derek, Derek. Diamond, diamond, diamond. Experience! And welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience for the week of February 26th, 2015. That's right, February is already just about over. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and hopefully this podcast finds you in a good place, hopefully with much better weather than what we're dealing with right now in Pensacola. I'm currently sitting in the visitor's radio booth at Pensacola Bayfront Stadium, and it's been a very dreary and gray and dull day uh, weather-wise and really work-wise, too. It's just, it's been a very busy and hectic week, and It's because of that that I didn't have a show last week. I've been busy with work and preparing for Pensacon, which is this weekend. It's it's been rapidly approaching since January, and it's finally here. When you're listening to this, if you're listening to it on Thursday, then Pensacon will just be mere hours away. And hopefully, if you live in the Pensacola area, you come check it out. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm going to be there. Uh, doing interviews with fans and celebrities, and you'll actually get to hear that uh, on the next episode of the Derek Diamond Experience, which I guess I can go ahead and make this announcement, but uh, due to the addition of a new show, for those that keep up with the Nerd Cave Network, we have a new show, uh, Pop Culture Palette, with Jason Robbins and Steve Scott, who have both appeared on this show in the past. Uh, Their show is now a part of our network, and It's going to be airing on Thursdays, and due to that and also my work schedule, uh, the Derek Diamond Experience will be moving back to Monday, and that's starting this Monday, March 2nd, and we're going to have a special Pensacon recap. You're going to get to hear uh, my interviews and everything I do uh, at Pensacon, so you'll have that to look forward to, and you'll have a podcast to kick off your week from the Nerd Cave Network. And every other week, we will have five shows, which is kind of unreal to think. It's something that we've always wanted since we've uh, really started doing multiple shows and officially launched the network, is we eventually wanted to have a show five days a week. And at least every other week, you're going to get that. So uh, look forward to that. Uh, In news this week, um, there wasn't really anything too big that happened. Um, If you want to hear my thoughts on Marvel uh, acquiring Spider-Man, you can check out the Nerd Cave podcast. But news that broke today that uh, made me pretty happy is Disney is rebooting one of my favorite cartoons from my childhood, and that is DuckTales. 
Uh, this is from Deadline. Disney XD is revisiting DuckTales. The network said today that it has ordered a new animated comedy series based on the Emmy-winning series that aired from 1987 to 1990 as part of the Disney Afternoon syndicated cartoon block. And it's slated to launch in 2017, and it will have Scrooge McDuck, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and even Donald Duck, which is going to be fun because Donald Duck is my favorite classic Disney character. DuckTales was, to me, a very underrated cartoon. It, it had a good cult following, but uh, it was a very well-written show. I thought the voices were great, the voice acting was great, and it was just an overall fun cartoon that both kids and adults can enjoy. I mean, kids are obviously going to enjoy cartoons, but it has good story and good writing for adults to be able to follow it and stay interested. So hopefully they bring that in, uh, the good writing to this new incarnation of DuckTales. And I know for that, 2017 cannot come soon enough. And also, if you haven't uh, checked it out, there's a really awesome Power Rangers fan film online. I can't remember the guy's name who made it, but he also did a Punisher and a Venom short film that were both really good. And this Power Rangers one is cool as well, and it's just so dark. It's pretty much the complete opposite of what you would expect from the Power Rangers. So I would definitely check it out. Uh, it's got James Vanderbeek in it, uh, which is very surprising, but I thought he did a pretty good job in it. And uh, yeah, you can find that on YouTube and all other various websites. But that's really about it as far as news goes. Due to my busy schedule, I haven't been able to really book any guests, but I do have a couple slated for the coming weeks. But this week, we are going to be taking a look inside the vault of the Derek Diamond experience, and we're going to pull highlights from five different interviews. Those guests are the Unicorn Wranglers, who were my first guest and also supply the theme song for this podcast. Uh, Jason Robbins, who I had, uh, I believe, my third guest and is also part of the Pop Culture Palette. Uh, Carrie Hunter, a local filmmaker. Christian Garman, the uh, local Channel 3 weatherman from Pensacola, and he also has his own podcast, which you'll get to hear about, called Digital Downtime, and also Steve Wise, who is a writer, director, and producer of film, and is also on staff at Pensacon, so you'll get to hear about Pensacon as well. And I guess that's really about it, so I'll quit running my mouth, and we'll get right to the best of the Derek Diamond Experience Volume 1. Are you a lifelong Star Wars fan? Do you still consider the Power Rangers to be the greatest thing that happened to your childhood? Or did you just finish binging Game of Thrones and can't wait for more? If the answer is yes, then you need to check out Pensacon. Pensacon is the premier convention on the Gulf Coast. Last year, Pensacon had a great turnout, and this year will not be any different. Come out to the Pensacola Bay Center February 27th through March 1st to see such names as Nichelle Nichols from the original Star Trek, Michael Bean from Terminator, Jeremy Bullock, who played Boba Fett in the original Star Wars trilogy, and many, many more. If you want more information on guests or how to get tickets, just go to Pensacon.com. Pensacon, where fans come together.
I'm now joined along with my very first guests on my new show. I have two of the three members of the local indie band, the Unicorn Wranglers. Guys, why don't you introduce yourselves? Hey, my name's Adam Waldron. I'm the bassist and lead vocalist for the Unicorn Wranglers. And I'm Ian Waldron, and I play guitar. How's it going, guys? Good. Good. Doing pretty good. How are you doing? Not too bad. I just want to say I'm really excited to be here on the Derek Diamond experience because it really is an experience. (laughs) And to be the first one to have that experience, you can't match that experience. No. You know, we have a week. We get a week's worth of uh, a badge of courage. Yeah. Saying that <laughs> like we, a merit badge. Yeah, yeah, no one else has experienced the Derek Diamond for at least a w- another week. That's true. True. Yeah. So have you guys always been uh, big fans of music? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, it's, it's changed over the years. You know, like when, when I was real little, you know, I would listen to um, everything from like... Uh, yeah, like Genesis and Phil Collins and and uh, stuff like that, stuff my dad listened to, and then I started to merge, um, you know, and started to get into stuff when I got older. You know, he got me my first Red Hot Chili Pepper CD, and after that, like it opened up a whole new world to, you know, Zeppelin and you know Pink Floyd and and bands yeah. like that, you know. And then all of a sudden, um, I fell in love with Scott Stapp and Creed, and uh, I still to this day, I still to this day listen to those records. Nobody will admit it. I'm admitting it on this program that I still listen to those records. We want bass hits and double plays. <laughs> yeah, we listened to that Scott Stapp. It's pretty great. Intro it's pretty great. Yesterday. It's pretty great. And uh, but yeah, no. So now you know. Now all of a sudden, you know, I listen to a lot of really weird music. I guess you could say. But I'm not. I'm. You know, I pretty much stay in the same vein. I'm not going out and listening to, you know, Latin reggae stuff like that. But although it's great, I'm just not not my cup of tea if you will so yeah and i kind of got into it um you know i think when you're young you just kind of listen to whatever whoever's the main influence in your life you listen to whatever that is and you know um luckily i had him who was pretty much blazing the way so all i had to do was just follow right in line and um i will take credit for the first red hot chili pepper cd that 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 we bought and it was actually cool it was californication um and uh, that was the uh, cover that had the the pool and the ocean and or the pool and the sky. sky sky and the 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 sky was in the pool and the pool water was in the sky. So it was actually a really cool cover and it caught my eye and I liked it over the Creed yeah cover. Well, and I mean, who 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 would yeah who would and uh, so so I got him that CD. But then um, you know I was I always like playing playing around with things. Um, I didn't know I wanted to play bass guitar for a while, but uh, I didn't even know that there was a bass guitar in a band until mm-hmm. until probably I was in middle school, and then I kind of pieced it together one day. And uh, but after after seeing Flea um, and kind of saying, "Hey, that that's looks a lot of fun," uh, I decided to do that, and and um, that really just started me off doing doing uh, doing a lot of different music things, you know, making my own music. Uh, in in my house using little tiny you know uh, telephone microphones and everything I could to kind of make music like that and kind of then just progressing and getting better as a musician I was never taught by anybody I kind of just had to pick it up and and run with it so and you taught yourself basically yeah, yeah that's it, pretty cool I, I started really recording music when I was probably a freshman in high school um, 
I had a little Ibanez bass guitar. It was purple, solid wood. I mean, it was like a it was like a sixty five dollar guitar, um, and, I, and all my songs were all just bass guitar. And I would play different, you know, try to make it sound different to kind of give more of a more of a different feel to it and and everything. But uh, you know. It, just doing that and progressing, then I actually got an actual six-string electric guitar, which, you know, I started doing that, and that's when I really started thinking about song structure and, and things like, you know, solos and how, how things should sound and what sounds good to the ear. Um, and that kind of all just uh, built up to, to them when me and Ian decided to kind of go on this adventure. Have you guys always been the Unicorn Wranglers, or has there been like any kind of different incarnations of your band and what it's become? <laughs> well, we started off as an NSYNC cover band. Oh, uh, wow. That's what yeah. we were going to yeah. be, and it was going to just be a two-piece, because uh, we that was really all NSYNC was. Nobody <laughs> wants to admit it, but it yeah. was Justin Timberlake and JC, whatever his name was. And so that's what we were going to do because I, you know, I was going to just dye my hair blonde and be, you know, just intense. <laughs> um, you have the curls. For I have it. the curls for it. Um, but no, like it. Uh, yeah, there's there's been different uh, variations of it. You know, um, you know, we we we've we've made uh, you know two records. Um, you know, Adam and I've played on all of them. Um, you know, obviously with the first record, it was called Monoceros. We had our buddy Cole. You can just came and sung on it. Um, our buddy Hunter Eubanks played drums on it, um, and then we, we we made that record, which is a record I'm I'm pretty proud of. I mean, you know, it wasn't necessarily the greatest thing to music known to man, but at, but it's your first record, right? It's our yeah. first record. I mean, you know, I had been playing guitar for literally like three months at that time. Go back and look at a lot of bands' first records, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can go back and listen to like a Chili Peppers their first record. It's not even worth listening to, and. Um, but um, but there's, it, a, there's a few. On yeah, well, I mean, it's it's like anything. It's <laughs> it's a launching point. You're yeah. like, okay, I can see where they're going. Let's see if they can get there. Um, and then on the second record, '95 Flannel, um, we 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 you know our buddy Cole was just kind of like, I, I, you know, I don't know if I really want to do this. We started to get a little bit more, not not serious, but we started to have you know kind of you know things started to pop up. You know, people wanted us to maybe play some shows and stuff like that, and just something he wasn't real comfortable with, and. Um, and then, um, so Adam took over vocals on that whole record on 95 Flannel. And that, that really kind of pushed us into a new um, level of commitment to it, if you will. And, uh, and then, you know, our buddy Hunter is very busy. He's a very talented musician, plays with all these different he's bands. He's a musician. And, um, and so he's, he's playing guitar, I think, for seven other bands and stuff like that. And so... We uh, we knew a guy, um, our, one of our best friends, his cousin uh, Brendan uh, Karnick, is now uh, in the band, and he's our drummer now. And so he's been playing with us the last six seven months, and uh, we're we're very excited. We love him. He's a giant we're teddy bear. Great yeah. time. He's a giant yeah, teddy bear. He's awesome. So uh, so yeah. So so we're, we're there's been some lineup changes, if you will, but at, at its core, it's always been me and Adam. And yeah. I think it will, you know. If anything ever comes and goes, it will, it will always be. And it, yeah, and it's it's pretty much always been the Unicorn Wranglers too. There's been a couple names thrown around, but but the Unicorn Wranglers kind of was the one that so stuck. How did you guys come up with that name? Ah, uh, well, a uh, part of part of my degree seeking uh, journey at the University of West Florida involved uh some some short filmmaking which i'm sure you're just as well versed in mm -hmm. um and i believe 
this was a, a script. No, it was yeah. Well, that we wanted yeah. to make, but we didn't make. Yeah, but it was an wanted. idea. Yeah, it was an idea. Yeah. And it was going to be this idea of these these guys that take Twister. Yep, take Twister. Take Twister, a great movie. It was a 1996. Six, 1996. 1996. Bill Paxton, uh, the the late and and, and great uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Helen Hunt, Helen Hunt, um, and and uh, take that, but put it in with this group of people that that are trying to catch these unicorns that are loose, and <laughs> and that that was there. and it, it, and it was going to be a, a, a serious drama. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, we were we it, we had some serious twists, plot twists. Yeah, um, it it was it was ready to go, but it just never it it's in a pile with about seventy five other really weird kind of. Potentially great, but potentially horrible. More like sci-fi movie. I was about right. to say they were movie, yeah. they were going to be right there up there with 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 the great Sharknado, Sharknado, Sharknado um, Two, Sharknado which is coming two. out later yeah, this year. Right, yeah. right. Can't we'll wait. Give a little plug yeah. there for sci-fi. Yeah, <laughs> buy our script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, buy the Unicorn Wrangler script. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, it's always been it's always been the Unicorn Wrangler. And you know what? At first, we were kind of like kind of nervous about it. But I'll tell you what, the last. Probably three four months. People have just been like, it's fantastic. So we're really happy that that's what the name is. We're glad we kept. Yeah, it. it's it's just an original name. It's different. Yeah, it's different. It it pops. I'm now joined along with my special guest this week. He is a musician, former EMT, animator, podcaster, and I feel like he has way more accomplishments than what I just named. My guest this week is Jason Robbins. Jason, how you doing? I am fantastic. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. I don't have to record or edit or upload or write show notes. I just get to sit on here and talk. It's awesome. Oh, so you're that guy too when you do your podcast. Exactly. <laughs> I can I can relate to you on that one. For the Nerd Cave and really any show I do, I'm always the one that edits it, uploads it, puts the synopsis promotes it and everything so i can i can feel your pain on that one yeah i mean it's fun to do like we were talking about earlier it's a labor of love but you know in the nerd cast we're up to 72 episodes and i'm just like i don't want to edit <laughs> <laughs> especially on those shows that can go a lot longer than normal yeah those i remember one time we did a three-hour show Jeez, and uh it, it still pains me to this day to think of how long it took to sit there and edit. Well, it gets a lot easier as you go along. When, I, when we first started, I would we would do the show, and then I would immediately go back and edit it immediately afterwards. So I would basically listen to the entire show and you know tighten everything up and make it sound good. And it would take about two and a half, three hours to do like an hour show. And then mm -hmm. by like the twentieth episodes, I'm I was just like, you know what? I don't care if there's spaces or people mess up. I, I just don't care. <laughs> I know you've been in a band and you currently do art and animation. Have you always been a huge fan of both of these things? Always, ever since I was old enough to hold a pencil, or you know, like I've, my dad was a musician and my brother was a musician, so that was I, I was always surrounded by music when I was a kid. And um, I always loved comic books and cartoons. Like, I still watch cartoons because I'm just a huge fan of animation and, and that type of stuff. So, I'm, 
I always wanted to be either a musician or a comic book artist when I grew up. I did one of those things. I'm still working on the other. What uh, cartoons did you watch growing up, and which ones do you still watch today? Oh, man. Um, well, Bugs Bunny is always a favorite. I have all the Looney Tunes collections. Um, always like the Disney movies, um, like Sword in the Stone. Robin Hood is my favorite Disney movie. Um, always like the Disney cartoons like DuckTales, Chippendales, Rescue Rangers, Darkwing Duck, uh, Gargoyles. All that type of stuff. Batman, the animated series. Um, I even like the cartoons from like the early 80s, too. Like the, uh, what was the name of that animation house? Um, the one that did He-Man and all that kind of stuff. I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember the name of it. Uh, just right on the tip of my tongue, man. But mm -hmm. all those kind of cartoons, I love those. Like Dungeons and Dragons. Like I still mm -hmm. love all those cartoons. Yeah, what, what's awesome is the whole streaming media like Netflix and Hulu is I've noticed that they've started to come out with more classic stuff, which is awesome. Which one, one thing that Netflix is missing is the old Batman animated series. Yeah. I've actually gotten them on the D on the DVD queue mm -hmm. because I'm kind of broke right now and I can't afford to go buy them. <laughs> so whenever I want to watch them, I just get them on the DVD queue. Yeah, it, that's that's awesome because you just named a ton of cartoons that you know I watched back in the day as well. What uh, you said, your brother and your dad were musicians. Yeah, my dad played guitar, um, and you should see his house now. It's full of guitars, and um, he's he's had custom made banjos and all kind of old. Uh, like just the craziest type of instruments you can think of. And, you know, my brother was a guitar player and I kind of went the other direction. I took up drums. Uh, I gotcha. I gotcha. But I always grew up, you know, my dad was big in the like sixties music. So I grew up listening to like the doors and Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and stuff like that. So that's what influenced me growing up. When did your band uh, fall as well get together? Well, they were actually called Drop and Trowel when I first joined the band. That's um, awesome. Their their drummer had left, and I was in another band at the time called Ferrigno. And um, we played a bunch of shows together, and their drummer quit. And um, I told them I would play a few shows with them until they found somebody. And then I started playing with them, and magic happened. So I decided to quit my other band and join them full time. And uh, we started to gain a lot of local notoriety and um, got hooked up with Todd Harrell and, and Chris from Three Doors, and they sent us to Seattle to record our album in 2003. That's, that's wild, because Three Doors Down is actually my all-time favorite band. So I went back and listened to the first episode of Pop Culture Palette, with you and Steve Scott. And when you mentioned that you went on tour with three doors down, I was like, Holy, that's, <laughs> that's pretty wild. What, what was it like touring with them? Um, there was some crazy stuff, you know, stuff I really can't talk about. Um, but as far as like what it felt like to walk out in front of those audiences every night, because at that time, 
they were the biggest rock band on the planet between yeah. you know the early 2000s and we went on tour with them and it was oh four <clears throat> and um we were opening up for them to like fourteen thousand seat arenas and it mm-hmm. was just i i can't even begin to describe what that feels like you know it's just it i can't even i don't have the words for it, it I, and most of the shows like I can't, I don't even remember anything because it's like kind of like you black out because there's so many people that you just your brain stops working. What are your thoughts on today's music scene as compared to back then? Because if you think about it, it's yeah, it's ten years ago, but it's not that long of a time. But yet the music scene is so different. It seems like because I, I don't really keep up with music today, but from what I can tell, it it seems a lot different. Honestly, I mean, the music industry has changed so much in so short a time. And I think things like, um, what's the name of that show? American Idol mm-hmm. and shows like that have really ruined the record industry. And I think rock and roll is dead, basically. We're never going to see the, um, another Led Zeppelin or The Doors or even another three doors. It's just, it's not going to happen. There's too much crap pop music out there. I mean, even when I was a kid, like back in the 80s and even in the 90s, like pop music, you could still listen to it because it had heart to it. And now it's like, I listen to the radio and it's just garbage. Yeah, I can't. You know, there's no, there's no heart, there's no soul to it. It's all about look at me, look and what, um, what crazy shit can I do this week to get myself into the media instead of just playing your music and letting that speak for you. Before I ask you about the movie itself, you mentioned Hurricane Katrina, and I know Hurricane Ivan back in two thousand four. It, it hit this area pretty badly, but Katrina was more like the Louisiana, Mississippi area. What, what was that like? Cause I've never, I haven't talked to anybody that actually went through that storm, like where it was hit the worst. It was the only time in my life that I actually thought I was going to die. Wow. And when you're faced with that, it's kind of like, you either go one of two ways. You either do what I did, and I kind of went into a deep depression for a while because afterwards, it was like everything I'd ever known was gone. And I didn't recognize familiar places anymore. And when you're somebody like me who doesn't deal with change very well, when Hurricane Katrina hit, you know, I lost contact with the guys in the band. You know, we didn't know if we were, if each other were even alive for like weeks on, you know, like at least six weeks. Um, and everything kind of fell apart after that. You know, the band broke up. Um, my grandfather died a few months afterwards. And I, I went into a deep depression for a while after the storm. Um, it's not something I ever want to go through again. 
and if another storm that big comes into the Gulf, I'm leaving because I can't go through that again. You know, just weeks on end of no power, um, living like a caveman, not knowing if your loved ones are alive or not, and no communication with the outside world. It was terrible. I, I can't even... I don't have another word besides terrible. And we're back on the Derek Diamond experience with my special guest this week, filmmaker extraordinaire, Miss Carrie Hunter. Carrie, how you doing? You're going to make my like ego inflate by using big words like that. Don't do that. Well, that's, that's the idea. <laughs> Got to boost up the guest confidence, I guess. I'm not going to be able to get out the front door, you know. <laughs> Well, you can just leave your ego here and... Okay. Sounds, sounds like a plan. Yeah. I could be wrong, but you actually went to college at Florida State, correct? Yes. I, I had the amazing opportunity to go to the film school there, and I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but it was a very... Um, very eye-opening and educational experience. I learned a huge amount there. So, what made you decide to go there? Um, well, it's kind of funny. I I really didn't want to try to think of how to say this. Um, originally, I was looking at going into the sciences. I was interested in anthropology and physics and. Um, I had been making documentary films for uh, History Fair and Science Fair, and my dad found out about this program at Florida State that was supposed to be really good that I could explore that further. And I think he was hoping that um, I'd have a little bit more in the way of economic opportunity than some of the sciences I was interested in. Mm -hmm. So I kind of ended up, I was already making movies, but I didn't know that I was going to try to make a living making movies. I thought I was going to end up doing something else. And my dad was like, well, you might want to check this out. And I just got really lucky and got in, and it was really cool. <laughs> yeah, I've been in the building, and it's it's kind of a surreal experience because you hear so many good things about, oh, this is one of the best film schools in the country and once you go in it's kind of I, I felt kind of surreal when you know when there I didn't actually go to the school but you know I've been in the building a couple of times and it's just it's pretty awesome just walking through the studios there is mind-blowing like yeah. they're they're huge sound sound stages and I mean now now that I'm older and I've been to some bigger markets I've seen much bigger sound stages but I mean Nothing else that I've seen in Florida compares to what is at the FSU Film School. But to me, even more than that is the quality of the professors that they got there was incredible. And mm -hmm. I mean, my first semester of film school, my favorite professors uh, were uh, Stuart and Vicki and... Stuart had won uh, special effects for a film called What Dreams May Come. And I didn't ever tell him this, but that had been like one of my favorite films when I was back in middle school. Uh, absolutely love that movie. Uh, and I got to, to FSU, and here's the man that's behind all of these 
amazing visual effects with the the world created out of paint. Mm-hmm. And he was just an amazing teacher. Like he, you know, when you're when you're 18, you're very um, insecure. You know, you're you don't have a lot of confidence when you're just leaving your family for the first time. And Stuart had this way of building you up and making you feel like you were capable of doing things that you didn't think that you're capable of. And he was just an amazing person. Um, And he's now at Savannah College of Art and Design. But um, at the time, we we had him the entire first semester. And then we also had a, a lady named Vicki Meyer who was our screenwriting teacher and she was a ghostwriter for all of these big Hollywood movies. And she couldn't tell us everything that she had worked on. Whenever you ghostwrite, you sign a contract that says you're not allowed to say what you've worked on. But we had heard that she had been one of the ghostwriters for Shrek. And then there were a dozen others that were like, oh, that's holy cool. crap. But she was another one of those um, those people that just made you feel capable, you know, even though you were just just finding your feet and still trying to figure out who you are as a filmmaker. And Vicky taught me how to write. And I mean, I don't claim to be the best writer, but the reason I can write as well as I do is because of Vicky, because she really pushed you. Like she, she was encouraging, but she also like, she, she expected the best. And if you didn't give her your best, she'd call you out on it. And I, I just really appreciated her. You've done a couple of uh, like filmmaker meet and greets. Mm-hmm. Uh, what made you decide to do those? Um, well, we we started the meet and greets not long after we started the Emerald Coast Film Group. Uh, this was uh, is basically founded by a guy named Josh who kind of disappeared like three weeks later and we never saw again. It was founded by him, Jonathan Payton, and myself, and then Kevin Almodovar, who I mentioned earlier, um, was involved in that very early stages of it. And it's kind of been a thing of like people kind of come and go from it. But uh, me, John, and Kevin have pretty much been moderating it since it started. But... Uh, John, uh, Jonathan Payton started the first meet and greet over in, uh, Navarre. And then he, uh, kind of went, he, he had to go traveling and doing other things with his job. So he wasn't really involved as much anymore. So, uh, me and Kevin kind of took it over and then I kind of ended up continuing it past when everybody else kind of seemed to have gone on to other things. So this is really something uh, John Payton started as far as the meet and greets and that we've kind of continued because what we saw happen immediately is that people started making more projects because they met people they could collaborate with. They had ideas. They felt empowered to go out and do it because they saw other people in the area that were doing it. And I think that a lot of the projects that we're seeing take place in the Pensacola area right now are a direct result from people meeting each other and Mm -hmm. realizing this is possible. We can make movies in our little town. Like we don't have to go to LA to be able to make something cool. Um, 
so it's it's cool to have gotten the opportunity to facilitate that. I mean, I think it's something that um, there was a need for it and there would have been something yeah. that came about to make that happen. But I definitely think it's cool that, um, you know, we, we got to be a part of it. So it's... Uh, the the meet and greets. It's basically everybody comes to a restaurant and then we talk to each other and find out who's working on what and if anybody has a casting call or a crew call, they tell everybody about it. And um, if there's an event coming up, like uh, Pensacon or Paracon, uh, Erica comes out and Pensacon Steve Weiss comes out and he'll promote the con- they'll promote the conventions there and like if they need people for camera stuff or whatever they'll they'll let people know about it and Mm -hmm. i mean that's really cool to have that connection and then um you know uh naraj a lot of the people he met for the actor factor he kind of he either met through the meet and greets or he met through amc talent who she actually sends a lot of her actors to the meet and greets because she understands that a lot of us filmmakers will write parts specifically for people we know can pull them off right and she wants us to know who they are so that we'll consider them. So. Yeah, that, that meet and greet uh, you had back in January was actually what got me working at Pensacon and getting to be part of the actor factor. Like, you know, having people on my show as well as actually being on set, you know, doing behind the scenes stuff and everything. So it, it definitely helps. And it's networking is really the way to go when you're doing stuff like that. Cause like you said, that's how you meet people that, you know, are working on projects or might be interested in helping you with yours. It's definitely, if, if you're trying to make your own projects happen, or if you're trying to find a job, the only way to do that is to get to know the people that are in the area. And it's, it's not just here. I've seen it in Mobile. I've seen it when I went out to LA. I've seen it in New York. Like, there's the same idea of, and I I don't want anybody to think that it's the it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's bullshit. It's more of a thing of, it's who knows you that knows you can do something, like. Who knows you that knows that you're able to edit? Who knows you that knows you can pull off this type of character really well? Who knows you that knows that you're going to actually show up when other people aren't going to freaking show up? Like, that is a thing. That mm-hmm. is a huge thing to know if people are going to be reliable. Right. And I've been on sets where actors were getting paid a buttload of money and didn't freaking show up. And agencies can't stand when they end up with an actor that does that um and i mean i've been on sets where they were giving people a chance that had no experience they were paying them to come out in pa like a pretty darn good rate and didn't show up and it's like what's wrong with you and of course anybody that recommended that person it looks bad on them Mm -hmm. so we're not going to recommend that you get this crew position or this acting position if we know that you have a habit of showing up 30 minutes late or not showing up at all so um i guess what i'm getting at is there's this is more about building a reputation than it is networking networking is not in itself 
that great of a thing. It's more of a people knowing that you're capable and you're reliable and that you're not an ass. Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience here with my special guest this week. You may recognize him from the morning weather on WEAR Channel 3 News here in Pensacola and also hosts his own podcast called Digital Downtime, Mr. Christian Garman. Christian, how are you doing today? I'm great, Derek. Thank you for asking me to be on the show. Oh, it's no problem. I'm really looking forward to this because, you know, I've watched you on TV for years. So, you know, getting to talk to you in person is pretty fantastic. Cool. Happy to be here. It's interesting. You know, as you said, I do a show and I'm always the one asking the questions. So uh, we'll see how it goes on the other end. (laughs) What have been some of the like storms uh, and hurricanes that you've covered? Well, gosh, um, I started on Channel 3. It was it was uh, June of uh, of 97 or maybe May. Well, immediately we had Hurricane Danny, mm-hmm. which uh, anyone back then will remember. That was a very interesting storm because it it moved into Mobile Bay and stopped. Literally, for about a day, it just sat over the bay. And that was incredible. I mean, to this day, that was the very beginning of my career. And to this day, I've never seen anything like it again. Usually, they keep moving. And so that became a real issue because those winds kept pounding for that long and the rain kept coming and it was it was more an issue in baldwin county certainly than it was in northwest florida right but it was hitting all of us and that was incredible so that's really that was my first taste and and i didn't know at the time how rare what was happening was Uh, of course the big one is ivan you know i mean i was at the station my my now wife was working at the station uh during hurricane ivan that is um that's the biggest which we recently had the ten year anniversary. Ten year anniversary was yeah. September sixteenth, yeah, um, and that's the biggest thing I've 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 covered from a weather standpoint. But just nine months later, of course, came a Hurricane Dennis. Mm-hmm. Now I was not working at Channel Three for everyone talks about Ivan and Dennis, you know, the duo. Um, there's another duo, of course, Aaron and Opal. Yep, I do remember that. And that was 95. I got hired in Channel 3 at 95, but I got hired in December. Those were August and October. Mm -hmm. So I was still, you know, a quote-unquote a civilian. And I remember I was riding those storms out at home like a lot of us were. Uh, So those are, are storms that certainly impacted my life. But from Channel 3, you know... People ask me the biggest storms, and of course the answer is always going to be Ivan. Um, But every year, it seems, there's some threat. Usually nothing materializes. But every year, there'll be some storm in the Northern Caribbean, and some of the early forecast tracks will be to move right across our area. So from a coverage standpoint, it will affect me every year, because there's almost always some storm that's projected to come close to us. But in terms of actual storms that came through here that had huge impacts, Katrina's another one. You know, Katrina, of course, moved on shore. Right. Obviously, we know between Louisiana and Mississippi right there on the line. It, a lot of people forget, it definitely affected our local weather oh, absolutely. as well. It played a big role here. So that's another one. Those, those are the big ones if we're just talking hurricanes. But, I mean, the floods from April um, yep. will be something I'll talk about for years and years. I mean, I hope we have another, never have another event like that. Because that was one. It wasn't a hurricane, but that ruined a lot of lives. And, and, mm-hmm. and to this day, there are a lot of roads that are not ready to go. Funny story about that. I actually had just moved in here into this apartment when those floods happened. Really? Yeah. Glad you're on the second floor. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I remember just watching it pour and pour mm-hmm. and pour outside my window. and I'm sure you remember the lightning. That's what yeah, the light. Yeah. It was continuous. That was to me the most genuinely afraid I've mm. been of the weather since Ivan. Yeah. Just because 
I just had no idea what was going to happen. I had just moved here. I didn't know Interesting. what was going to happen. It was, it was just, it was crazy. And then seeing the pictures the next day of scenic being washed Gone, away. right. Of uh, Johnson Avenue just down the road from here, there was a giant hole in it that was just, yeah. it was just crazy. It was. Uh, you know, I went to, I was supposed to work the next morning. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and there was a, a lot of people forget, there was a tornado warning for like Pensacola, Northeast Pensacola, which is precisely where I live. In fact, me and the wife, at that time it was heavy rain, but it was like 8.45 p.m. We went and stood, We had, like I said, we have two young daughters, stood right by their bedroom. You know, I, of course, am well aware of what you're supposed to do in the event of a tornado warning. So mm-hmm. I had taken those precautions. I was just ready, just stood there watching them. And here's something cool. I'll give Channel 3 a shout out. We have a mobile app. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I have it on my phone and we broadcast live. Well, I went into our safe zone as I watched the kids, and I was watching Alan and Lena De Flores breaking down the tornado warning on my phone, so I knew exactly what the threat was. So before the flooding became an issue, you know, yeah, we went through the, the tornado warning. Yeah. And then around 9.30, because that ended at 9, if I remember correctly, about 9.30, I said, I got to go to bed. I'm due back at work, you know, at 3 a.m. I woke up around 2, and Alan Strum, who, of course, was at the station, he, he said, have you seen Facebook? And I said, no. He said, you may not be coming in. I said, what am I missing? He said, well, the rain hasn't stopped. There have been flash floods everywhere. Most people are either trapped in their homes or, worst case, stuck on the roads. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because even though I took a brief moment, I mean, I had to hustle. I took a brief moment to look at some of the photos. I still thought I can get to work. I mean, I had never yet since I started doing this, actually been stuck to where I couldn't get in. So I got in the car and uh, started heading down Langley. And I was driving very, very slowly and cautiously. And I didn't make it two miles before I realized, okay, that's it. He's right. I'm not going to work. Jared Willits uh, could not make it into work. Christina Leavenworth could not make it into work. It was incredible. So Lena and Alan, who had worked the night before, they were stuck there. They couldn't make it home. We couldn't make it in, so it just turned into them working essentially double shifts till we were able to get in, which was closer to like 8 or 9 a.m. So yeah, that, that was pretty amazing. Again, it wasn't a hurricane, uh, but in terms of enormous effects, it's top three or four events since I've been yeah, doing this. You know, Absolutely. What gave you the idea to do a podcast? Well, thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm glad, glad you asked. It's called Digital Downtime. Uh, well, you got to you got to plug it. Well, you look, you, you know, you're 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 doing podcasts like me. You, you, you'll fight for every oh, listen you can ab- get. Oh so, yeah, absolutely. There's um, no shame in plugging no, anything. No, there's not. I've definitely found that out with this venture. Uh, what happened was, I, I, I this is boy, I tell you, I say this a lot. This is another case where I kind of got lucky. Um, the guy in charge, uh, you know, Daniel Hemme, mm-hmm. in, in charge of creative services at Channel 3. Well, he, he used to have, back before he was in Pensacola, he had a show uh, where he was a movie critic. It was a TV show. He's big time into movies. And I a, did not know Yeah, that. very creative guy. And he had said to me maybe three or four years ago, you know, would you be interested in doing something like that here? And we kind of briefly talked about it. And you know how it goes sometimes with ideas. You talk about it and you think about it seriously. And then it just sort of fades away kind of off. And that's what happened. Well, in the meantime, so, so that was three or four years ago. Then I started running about five years ago. And, I, and I'm an avid runner. I run like crazy. Well, what I listen to when I run is podcasts, mostly sports podcasts, usually the stuff from ESPN. But I, I do mm-hmm. listen to The Nerdist and I listen to Mark Maron's uh, podcast as well. And those are more where they have on comedians or actors and interview. So as I listen to these all the time, it was about a year and a half ago that I started thinking, 
I'd like to do this. Because I've always thought radio would be something I would love to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't have a radio job, but a podcast is sort of the next thing. I mean, it's, I always tell people when I ask them to come on, it's kind of like a radio show for the internet is essentially mm-hmm. all it is. Um, so I started thinking, but there are so many really, really, really good podcasts out there. What can I do that's in any way different? And the only thing I could come up with was a local one mm-hmm. that because I work at Channel 3, I would be able to have guests on that might be tougher to get otherwise. So I thought, huh, I wonder about that. Well, even then, I sort of sat on that idea, and I never really pursued it, but it was sort of in the back of my head that I thought that'd be great. Well, then last December, um, just literally in a chance meeting in the hallway, Daniel Hemme, for whatever reason, he said, hey, you know, we never worked on that that movie idea. We should really get together and see if we can come up with something. And um, I said, okay, let's have a meeting. So two days later, we have a meeting. And early on, I said, Daniel, I got to tell you, you know, I, I have a, a five-year-old, or at that time, a four-year-old, and a, and, a, and a baby, essentially. I don't know that I have the kind of time that would be required to do this movie show because it would require going to theaters, interviewing people. As they, I mean, a lot goes into it. I said, but I do have another idea. And he said, tell me about it. And, and I, I said, well, um, you know, I frequently love to talk about movies. I love to talk about sports. I always have felt like I would enjoy interviewing people, though I hadn't had much of an opportunity of that at Channel 3, and certainly not in the last 10 years. I said, I'd like to do a podcast. And I kind of explained exactly what that would mean and entail, and, and he said, okay, um, tell me more, which was super cool. Because I, for all I knew, he could have said, I don't know if there's anything in that. Uh, he didn't. He was really supportive. And Travis Brown, who anyone who listens to my show knows, Travis is the co-host. Travis works in creative services uh, for Daniel. Daniel's in charge of the department. And Travis and I have been very, very good friends for, at this point, since he started working at Channel 3 around 2001. And we've always loved talking movies and sports. And we, I don't know how much we make anyone else laugh, but we make each other laugh hard. Mm-hmm. And I told Daniel, literally in that very first meeting, and we recorded most of that meeting. I think we still have this on file somewhere. I said, listen, the only way I can make this work is if Travis gets to be part of it. I said, and I don't just mean putting it together. I said, I mean, I want Travis to do the on-air stuff with right. me. Which, Travis hadn't done anything like that in terms of, at Channel 3, certainly. you know, I mean, nobody within the confines of Channel 3 was thinking of Travis as an on-air person. But I just, I just knew that I would need someone with me because I'd never carried a radio show. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to have someone with me, he was the guy I wanted. And again, Hemi wasn't like, well, Christian Travis doesn't really do on-air stuff. He was like, I get it. And so what he said was, this was about December 15th. He said, how about let's set this goal that by January 30th, I want to have a test one. So I said, okay. About three days later, I asked Travis, I said, you got five minutes? He came in the weather center and I kind of broke down the idea for him. He was super cool. He said, yeah, this sounds great. I'd love to be part of it. And over the course of the next five weeks, we would do what you've done here. We would bring in a couple of mics into a room and we would try to come up with some ideas for content, whether we were talking about, that was the movie award season. So we were talking about the Oscars or the Golden Globes. And we just did these sort of practice shows. And I brought, we did three or four and I brought one of them to Hemi and I said, here it is, take a listen. And he listened and he said, yep, this works. And then he took it to the general manager uh, who said, okay. And, and, he, and frankly, that guy, the GM, he didn't, I don't think he was too aware of what a podcast was, but he trusted Hemi and he had this actual you know, piece of evidence, the right. actual show to listen to it for five minutes and say, yeah, okay, I can see this. 
And so that's kind of how it came to be. So for the course of the next few months, Travis and I continued to do practice shows, practice shows, because we had to figure out how were we going to distribute it? How do you get it on iTunes? Mm -hmm. You know, all that stuff. And finally in April, it was ready to go and we launched the first episode. And just like you, we've been doing one uh, every single week since. So the idea actually came to me when I was running one day and, and I was listening to you know, probably Mike and Mike or something from ESPN. And it started hitting me and I started getting, you know, when you get an idea you're excited about, you start feeling yourself Mm -hmm. getting excited and the juices start flowing. Maybe exactly what you went through when you decided to do this. Um, and, and it just, it took off and uh, I'm real proud of the show. And, and just like you said, we were talking about how many people listen to our shows. It's so random. Some weeks you feel really good, like, okay, finally, they're listening now. I've got the listeners. And then the next week you're back down to almost nobody. And then the week after that, it's huge again. And uh, it's tough to get a feel for it. So at this point, Travis and I are trying to do shows that we'd be really interested in, and we just hope people listen. And welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience with my very special guest this week. He is a writer, director, and producer of film. Mr. Steve Wise. Steve, how you doing today? Hey, I'm doing pretty good, Derek. Who had the original idea for Pensacon? Like, how did that whole idea blossom into what it became? My understanding is that Mike Ensley, who's the chairman of Pensacon, um, had uh, this was kind of a, a dream of his for a very long time to, to do a convention that would bring the community together. And, you know, there, there's been a few small conventions here in town. And um, initially, he was wanting to do another small one and figured, well, you know, we can bring one or two guests, some celebrities, but, you know, kind of focus on the the comic book world. Um, We don't really have a true comic book convention here. And so um, he has some contacts through um, to, to the comic book world. And so he figured, well, we can get some comic book guests and get, you know, maybe one or two celebrity guests. And he was put in touch with Ben, and the decision then was made, well, let's um, do it right, and let's spend a little money and bring in some major guests, and let's make it make it big. And it, it ended up, I don't think it was a snap decision like that, but it kind of evolved and grew. And by the time that we actually did it this past February, it was at the Pensacola Bay Center and the Crown Plaza Hotel right next door. And we had events and parties going on in various places downtown. Mm-hmm. And it had spread basically to the whole downtown area. And so Mike's dream of having a large community event where everybody comes together um, kind of came true. Yeah, and it did. I don't... Did you guys expect it to be as big as it was? (laughs) I don't think any of us knew what to expect. Um, We were hoping that we would have 5,000 attendees. Mm -hmm. Um, I think over the course of the weekend, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 15. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know on Saturday alone, we had close to 11,000 people. Yeah, Saturday was was pretty crazy because I, I was on the the film crew and I just mm-hmm. remember walking around the the vendor floor and it was next to impossible to move because I'm carrying this camera and a tripod and I'm having to hold it like this as I walk through the crowd because there's just so many people there yeah and demonstrate to your audience again how you're carrying it well they won't be able to see it. 
I talk with my hands. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're the first person to ever call me out on that. <laughs> What what were your overall thoughts? Like, what were some of your personal highlights from Pensacon? Things that like you personally enjoyed. <laughs> well, it was all a blur. <laughs> I, I this 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 past year, um, my main responsibility was transportation. Right. So I was responsible for getting all of our celebrity guests from the airport to the hotel, and then back to the airport again when all was said and done. And then during the event to make sure that we had, because our convention is a little bit strange in the fact that the hotel is right next door to our primary event, uh, venue, but it also, some of it takes place at the hotel. And of course, all of our celebs were staying at that hotel, but they needed to be transported to the Bay Center. Mm-hmm. And the way that the roads are designed, there's not an easy way no, to do that. There's really not. And so, yeah, uh, it was it was kind of a logistics nightmare just to try to figure out how to get it ne- get to these people next door. We didn't want them to walk, you know. We wanted them to, to actually, you know, be driven. Mm-hmm. And but you have to like drive all the way around the block and come in behind the base. It was, it was just it was challenging. Um, so we had a couple of wonderful people, uh, Maria Landy and Walt Matthews, was overseeing that aspect of things for me. So I was able to kind of check in with them periodically and see how things were going. We had a crew of great drivers who were responsible for getting them back and forth because in the morning they would have to be shuttled over to the base center. Then at some point during the weekend, they would have to be brought back because that was the large panel room was at the Crown Plaza. So they'd have to do their panel and then be shuttled back again. And then at the end of the day, brought back, you know, so it's a constant back and forth all day yeah. long. And so we had some big rental SUVs that were, you know, there to, to that were driving all day long. Um, and then we had parking and that was a challenge in itself. <laughs> but the biggest uh, thing was, most of our guests were arriving on Thursday before the event. Well, a lot of them were flying in through Houston, which had severe thunderstorms. So virtually every flight coming through Houston was either delayed or canceled. So we were constantly getting updates. Oh, this group of people aren't arriving when they're supposed to be because of delays. Um, Mike Ensley texted me at one point and said, um, call Parker Stevenson at this number and find out what's going on. And of course, I grew up watching the Hardy Boys and like, call Parker Stevenson. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I got on the phone, called, and, and hear this voice, you know, hello. I said, is this Parker Stevenson? Yeah. So I explained who I was and he said, yeah, I'm sitting in the airplane on the tarmac in Los Angeles where we haven't moved for three hours. Wow. There's a problem with the wing. And there were a couple other celebs that were on the flight with him and like, oh, great. Total four planes had mechanical problems. Jeez. Then to top it off, Five o'clock rolls around and we have still flights coming in all the way to like 1030 that night. I, I'm, 
I go up. I'd just been outside talking with our taxi drivers, and I go up to the second floor where um, arrivals are and talk to one of the employees. And they said, oh, well, we've got delays. I'm like, why? Look out the window. I looked out the window, and it was a sheet of fog. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. I, said, I was just outside. Where did this fog come from? There was no fog five minutes ago. It just dropped, and it shut down the airport for yeah. hours. So we had planes coming in for a landing and taking off again because they could not land. And so we had, play, it was like Die Hard 2. Planes were just circling overhead, just circling and circling until they were running out of gas. And then they were being diverted to Mobile and uh, New Orleans and Fort Walden Beach and Atlanta. And we had people like Priscilla Barnes who disappeared. We had no idea where she was. We found out she was in Dallas. Wow. And, I mean, you talk about a nightmare. <laughs> Here, we had everything all organized, all these people coming in at this time. We had it just working like clockwork, and then just boop, throw it out the window thanks to mechanical problems and weather. Last thing I wanted to ask you, I've got to know about this Batman script <laughs> that you were talking about earlier. <clears throat> okay. Let, let me go back a little bit uh, and tell the story. Um, I, I think I mentioned I was sharing an office with, uh, with Dan Myrick and some other people at Universal Studios in, in Orlando. And I teamed up with uh, a buddy of mine from film school, Lee Shapiro, and we wrote a couple screenplays. And so we decided that we were going to try to pitch the scripts to Hollywood. And how we did that, as I said earlier, was using our address at Universal mm -hmm. as a means to convince them that we're for real. Because... You know, 99% of the time, if you are just a writer, especially one that does not live in Los Angeles, and you call Warner Brothers, they're going to say, yeah, no, thank you, and hang up on you. But because we had that address, we were able to get some appointments. So we spent some time, several years, actually, making trips back and forth to Los Angeles, meeting with people. We got a, a manager at one, you know, at one point for, like I think, like for two years. Um, she represented us. Um, everybody had read our stuff. I mean, literally every single studio multiple times had had read our, our materials. Unfortunately, we tend to write things that they deem uh, unmarkable <laughs> to some degree. Uh, we had From the Ashes, which was about a uh, you know, end-of-the-world scenario, a post-apocalyptic film where 90% of the world loses their eyesight. So it's not a disaster film in the, in the traditional sense or it's not even a like a zombie apocalypse um but the main character is a, a 12 year old mm -hmm. searching for his parents and one one studio said i can see this winning an oscar but we aren't going to take a chance on it because how do you market a kid in that type of setting yeah anyways to make make a very long story slightly shorter um batman and robin came out it did. <sighs> now, both of us were huge Batman fans. And, you know, I love, absolutely love the Tim Burton films. I even enjoyed 
Batman Forever when it came it's, out. It's not as bad as people remember it because people think of Batman and Robin and they yeah. associate Forever with it. But well, for, for what it is, it wasn't a terrible. Movie. It has some great lines of dialogue. Jim Carrey was fantastic yes, as the Riddler. But we we actually spoke to Lee Batchelor, who was one of the original writers. He and his wife right. uh, Janet, I believe, um, wrote the the first draft before Akiva Goldsman got his hands on it and destroyed it. And he said, yeah, when I saw the movie, there were scenes that didn't make any sense that I didn't write. Like, oh, there's a car chase out of nowhere. Just suddenly we cut to a car chase. Yeah. Why? Because we need a car chase. Uh, Why not? Oh, and look, the Batmobile is going up the side of a building. Why? Why not? Why not? (laughs) So there were things in that movie that just, it was like, okay, whatever. Either Joel Schumacher said, I want to do this. And so Akiva wrote it, or he took the script and said, oh, you know what this needs? Just random stuff happening that, yeah, whatever. But, but when that movie came out, I I enjoyed it. it. It has gotten worse for me over the years of repeated viewing. It's very hard for me to watch it now. But then Batman and Robin came out. Lee could not bring himself to see it in the theaters. And I, I unfortunately did. <clears throat> and had a mental block. I could not remember a thing about that movie. It just... I just blocked it out. And so it was released on home video, and I I told Lee, you need to see this movie. So we rented it and watched it and had to rewind it several times (laughs) to see if what we thought we saw, we actually saw. (laughs) And yes, it did. Batman really just pull out a credit card. Uh, oh, Robin crashing through a, wind, a plate glass window and leaving the outline of the bat signal. I forgot about that one. <sighs> the that was pretty brutal. Poison Ivy's plant attacking Robin and then them reversing the film repeatedly to show the struggle with him in a vine. Oh, I mean, it was just, I, I, I don't even want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> the movie was, was bad. Yeah. And when we finished it, we just looked at each other and said, you know, we could come up with something better. Mm-hmm. And so we brainstormed for, I think, 15 minutes and came up with what we thought was a really good story. Um, don't want to get into the story specifics, but it basically the villain was Scarecrow. And we had some a really cool original take on him. We included the character of Man Bat in there. Mm-hmm. And made him kind of what we call a gray character where he's not a hero. He's not a villain. We don't know if he's going to become good or evil. So through the course of the story, that's kind of the crux is what's, what direction is he going to take? And we made it as a direct sequel. So Robin was a character. Um, we actually sent Robin away at the end of the story. So a possible sequel to that could go back to a solo Batman um, or bring in other characters if necessary. Um, but we wanted to make it dark again. Uh, we try to keep it kind of in the tone of the Tim Burton films, but not quite as... I mean, his films were still kind of cartoony in, in some respects. and uh, But it was still more like that, but yet a standalone original right. take. And that, that was our intent. 
And we um, spent a couple months writing it. We did two drafts of it. Uh, we, we, contact, we actually contacted Warner Brothers before we wrote it. And uh, we had just come back from a, a trip where we had a meeting with them. And so we, we called our contact. They put us in touch with um, Tom LaSalle, who was a uh, vice president at the time. And Tom said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And he wanted to read the script. And we said, well, it'll take us a couple months to write it and we'll send it to you. We sent it to him and he quit Warner Brothers. Wow. So we get a, a letter back from legal saying, we don't accept unsolicited screenplays. This is our material, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you asked for it. Yes. <laughs> so we spent several more months trying to convince them that Tom LaSalle asked for it. He wanted to read this. So they finally said, oh, okay, I guess they must have talked to him or something. And so they accepted our submission. But by then, there was so much backlash on Batman and Robin that Warner Brothers did not know what they were going to do with that franchise. And they told us point blank, we may never do another Batman movie. But for now, we're just going to be sitting and letting that die down. So we kept like reminding them by sending them like toys. <laughs> <laughs> send them a, a Batman and man, or I'm sorry, a, a Scarecrow Man Bat action figure with a little box with hay in it and a note saying, you know, don't they make a wonderful couple? You know, <laughs> things like that. We'd send them uh, marketing material and we'd send them a lot of things just to, hey, remember us. And we spoke with the president uh, of Warner Brothers, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, and he said, well, you know, we are gearing up. Now, this is like two years had passed by this point. And he said, yeah, we're, we're getting ready to gear up to do another Batman movie. And we have your script. It's sitting on my desk. Okay, okay. You know? <laughs> so we're like waiting, you know, <laughs> right there on the edge of our seats, waiting to, you know. And then Jeff, Jeff Robinoff, um, who was, had taken over for Tom. He was the, the VP. Uh, he called us and he said, well, Lorenzo asked me to call you we decided that we're going to go in a different direction. We're not going to make a direct sequel to this series. We're going to start a new series. That's where the term reboot came from. Really? Yeah. Wow. That they were rebooting the Batman series. That was the first time that term had ever been used in that context. So we were like, okay, we were disappointed. but And they said, well we are actually going to be adapting the graphic novel Batman Year One mm -hmm. that Frank Miller wrote. Yep. Great and book. they had hired Frank and Darren Aronofsky to write the script. Aronofsky was going to direct. Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, it's better than the other script that was floating around with Scarecrow by Mark Protasovich, who has had a very long and fruitful career as a writer <laughs> and I'm really jealous of him, uh, but, <laughs> but that script got rejected before ours did. So ours lasted yeah. longer. Um, but we're like, well, okay, if, if you have to reject us, I can understand bringing Frank Miller in and Darren Aronofsky. I can understand that. And apparently when they turned in their first draft, Warner Brothers hated it so much they fired both of them immediately and said, we're not doing that. <laughs> so that's what happened with yeah. it. I had no idea. Yeah, they 
from what I understand, went in a really weird direction with it. That was not the comic book. Because I, I read the book, and the book is really, really mm-hmm. good. So when they announced that, I was like, oh, this will be great. Yeah. And then I just kept following it and following it, and then they just announced that it was dropped, but they never said why. So Well, they they went through another – over the last series of several years then, they they – went through different projects. Um, Wolfgang Peterson mm-hmm. was attached to direct a Justice League movie yep, I remember way back that. then, which they're now finally doing. Um, then that got scrapped. Bose Jakin, who directed Remember the Titans, he was attached to do a Batman Beyond live-action adaptation of the comic book, or the, car- the car- cartoon series. That would have been interesting. That would have been cool. That went nowhere. And, they, you know, each one of these projects spent, like, over a year in development before they canceled it. Um, I want to say there was another another Batman project, too, that they were looking at doing. And then, finally, they announced Batman Begins. Um, and... Uh, before the movie came out, Lee got a hold of a copy of the script and he gave it to me and said, read this. I'm like, okay. And so I started reading through there and like, well, you know, the, the story was completely different. I was loved the fact that they um, were telling the origins yeah. of, of how Bruce Wayne became Batman and going back and showing his parents getting killed and having that in a dramatic format instead of just a flashback like two other movies did. But <laughs> as I'm reading through, like this scene is very familiar. Flip, 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 flip. This this scene sounds like it's from our script. Flip, flip, flip. Oh, this line of dialogue is just like one that we came up with. Oh, here's another line of dialogue that. Oh, that was from our script. <laughs> and I think I counted maybe eight or ten specific lines of dialogue that were verbatim. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, some, some individual scenes in, in, in taken by themselves, you know, I mean, there's no, uh, plagiarism that, that can be yeah. claimed. Um, but it, and I, and I don't want to accuse Chris Nolan of <laughs> ripping us off. Uh, but it just, it was very interesting that, you know, the wording, that was very unique because we, we spent a lot of time trying to have very specific dialogue, not just, you know, things that anybody could say at any point. And to hear to see that exact phrasing in another script. Um, I, I'm not really sure if I, you know, should have taken offense or been kind of proud that they, you know, liked our script so much that some of it ended up yeah. <laughs> in this other screenplay. And uh, um, the the biggest thing, though, that, and this has nothing to do with Chris Nolan, was um, of the marketing material that we sent in. Lee is a graphic designer also, and he, he designed various unique Bat logos, mm-hmm. and one of them is identical to what was on the posters. Wow. So um, that that's kind of rubs me the wrong way right there because, you know, could they have come up with it independently of us? Sure. You know, I mean, that, that there is that possibility. Um, but the fact is that we did send them that material and it ended up, that was what they went with, with the new design of the bat logo. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, can, I can understand that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love the dark Knight series. I, you know, I think that that, 
what what Chris Nolan did with with those films, including Dark Knight Rises. I'm I'm a defendant of that film. Um, I really appreciate that. So, um, did ours get made? No. Can you see little echoes of ours? Sure, you know. <laughs> um, the the nice thing though was uh, two or three years ago, um, the Independent Film Channel on their website had an article about um, the seven best unproduced Batman scripts, and ours made the list. Oh, that's awesome! So that's great. Uh, that made me feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you once again for tuning in to this special episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. Hopefully you had as much fun listening to those past interviews as I did. And don't forget you can check out all of our shows on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and NerdCaveNetwork.com. On Monday, kicking off your week is the Derek Diamond Experience. Yes, we are back on Mondays. Tuesday is the Nerd Cave Podcast. Wednesday is Fist of Monkey. Thursday is the Pop Culture Palette. And every other Friday is Time for Comics. And that's all I've got, so enjoy the rest of your week, have a safe weekend, and we'll see you guys back on Monday with my recap of Pensacon. Listening to a Nerd Cave Network production.